0: This morning, with God's help and your listening ears, we're going to finish the book of Esther. Uh, I had wanted to do it in two more sermons, but uh, I don't want to bore you. I know you get bored easy, so I I want to keep the story moving very quickly. last three chapters tell a specific story, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, If you're new here with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, It is very common for our weekly messages to build one on the other. And I invite you to go out to social media, church website, et cetera, and grab the first first three parts of this series. It'll definitely help clarify some things that I'm going to move quickly over this morning. Let me begin with some personal observations. Uh, I only get out of the gym what I put into it. Some of you are probably saying you need to put more into it. And I agree. I'm working on that. But I only get out of it what I'm willing to invest in it. Uh, I got out of higher education what I was willing to put into my education. Would you just think about yourself for a minute as I make these statements. Uh, I'm continually receiving from my friends what I have in my relationships invested into my friends. I get a lot of love. I've given a lot of love. If I need time, I get time. Say, why do you get time for your friends? Because I've given time to my friends. I've poured my life and my love into my disciples. And I know it's a selfish statement, but you, as Paul said, bear with me while I talk like a fool for a moment. I've poured my life into my disciples. I've poured my attention and my love into my disciples. And because of that, I have a bias. I believe that my disciples are the greatest disciples on planet Earth. And I would take Jeremy and Erica and Chris and Kristen, and I'd just go around the room and name half a dozen of you, and Shilning and Ruth and Ezekiel and Omar and and Luz, and I'd put them up against anybody on planet Earth. What it means to show the life of Christ to someone, and love someone, and pour yourself into someone. Now... Let me make another observation. Some of you will get to witness this next year when we go to Israel. When the Orthodox Jews read the Bible at the Western Wall, and I hope the the days that we go down to the Western Wall you're able to experience this. It just depends on who's there. I can't make them show up, but uh, uh, it will be likely that there will be some Orthodox uh, Jews praying at the Western Wall when we go. And when they pray at the Western Wall, they use their whole body, now, this could revolutionize your Bible reading right here. Do you ever, you ever fall asleep during prayer time? Well, I thought if we came to church this more, y'all be honest with me. You know? Yes, you do. You ever read your Bible and then somewhere as you're reading it, your mind drifts off and, and you're on vacation and you're paying the bills and you're picking up the kids and you're thinking about dinner and then, oh, oh, I'm in 1st King, okay, oh uh, yeah. And you come right back. Leviticus will definitely do that to you. By the way, if you didn't know that. When the Jews read the Bible at the Western Wall, they read like this. They'll get the Bible out in front of them, and they'll read like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not when he makes me lie down. And they just gyrate and move and, and, and sway and nod, and, and they're just, you'll look at them and think, this guy's having an upright seizure. You know, he's reading his Bible. But they, when they read their Bible, they get their whole body into it, and they believe that that helps you stay focused, it helps you engage with the Word of God, You know, it it helps you, you know, with that in mind, I've tried all kinds of things as a Christian. I experiment a lot. Uh, If you haven't tried this, now it's 110 degrees, so don't do it this week or this month or, or, you know, wait till October. But try walking prayer. So somewhere in the evening when the sun starts to set here and it's not 120 degrees, you know, go for a walk. Get your water bottle and just walk and pray. Now, you know, if you pass people on the street, don't pray out loud. They'll think you're crazy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but walk and pray. You, you'll be amazed. It just, it's different. Just try different things, and the Jews put their whole selves into it. Now, let me just make these statements quickly. I strongly believe that your church experience depends largely on what you're willing to put into your church. Uh, I can't imagine someone could come to Cornerstone and be bored or be disinterested or, but again, when I come to church, I'm all in, you know. But again, I'm the pastor, and I understand that may be a little different. But even when I wasn't the pastor, I was engaged. And, and just to me, church is a thing that I, I get to do on Sunday, and I look forward to seeing you and having the fellowship and getting in the word and, and talking about how good God is and all of, these, all of these things. I think if you want great worship, then you have to get into worship. Most of you were raised in traditions where you were told worship was to be non-emotional. You were, you were raised in traditions where you were told you were not to move your body during worship. You were raised in traditions where you were told, you know, use the fewest instruments possible, the most, uh, you know, uh, Elizabethan instruments possible, you know, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, 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 and sterilize it real down and Puritan it real up and everybody get real stoic. Listen, that's just for a brief glimpse in history of our forefathers that worshipped looked like that. For thousands and thousands of years, worship looks completely different from that. The Jews are all in on worship. David is singing and dancing and skipping to the point his wife is embarrassed and says, honey, stop it for the love of Pete. You're embarrassing me. You can't dance. Go write a song. You're good at that. And uh, anyway, uh, that's so removed from our puritanical roots in America that it's taken us almost 200 years to liven back up our worship in America to what it might have looked like in the Old Testament. Listen, I think this, when when you approach God, if you want to feel something, then you have to invest something emotionally. If you want to feel, you have to invest emotionally. You have to put yourself out there. If you want to be more connected to your church, I just throw this out as an option to try for the next few weeks. Come and pray with us on Wednesday night. If you feel like, well, I come to church, but I'm disconnected from everyone, well, get on your knees in here with us on Wednesday night and connect. Let's connect together and go out. Listen, one of us will kneel right beside you, and we'll go right to the throne of God, and we'll pour our lives out right here together, you and us all together as a family, and we will make connections at the throne of God. You say, well, I just, Pastor, you're all fired up about missions and I don't get too fired up about missions. Listen, if you want to care more about the mission of Christ and the global family of Christ, then give liberally. Drop $10,000 into missions and watch how much you start caring. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. And the people around here who are feeding orphans every week, which is a great portion of you. And the people here every week who are feeding Ukrainians and putting clothes on those girls' backs, and shoes on their feet, you care, and you're invested financially in that. There's, if you, like I said, if you just say, well, I just don't really care, make yourself cut out a cheeseburger and give to missions and see if you start caring more. This is how Jesus said this would work, where your treasure is there, your heart is. If you want to make disciples, then I would say to you, back up one step and invest in being a good disciple yourself. Which means, Chris, putting in the time, right? Showing up to D group memorizing your verses, filling out your workbook, being emotionally invested in the process. Put yourself out there and take it serious. For many of you who are raised in church and now you're just coming through the disciple process 10 or 20 years later, what it means for us is we have to humble ourselves and realize that just because we've been saved 20 or 30 years doesn't mean we know anything. We can still be spiritual infants because we haven't grown after our salvation and we have to get engaged in a process that will take us to spiritual maturity. Humble yourself, you've got a lot to learn. And with that mindset, we're just getting the prelude going here, you're invited every week when we come together like this to connect uh, relationally, emotionally, fully with a biblical story that I've been sharing with you. Let me give you a quick recap just from last week, not the whole series. Esther has revealed to King Xerxes that she's a Jewess. This was unknown at some point, and now it's being revealed. It has also now been revealed that Mordecai, the hero of Persia, who has saved the king's life, one of the king's advisors, he is also a Jew. The implications have been sown in front of us To draw a conclusion that Haman is a really bad guy. He's not only an anti-Semite. But it looks like Haman is actually making a play for the throne himself. He is number two only to the king. He's trying to jockey and control people groups in the kingdom. And maybe he was behind the original conspiracy where the two people were executed. Uh, There's a lot of implications going on here. Xerxes... Now enters his wife's chambers, finds Haman on top of his wife, uh, yelling at her and molesting her. King Xerxes orders Haman's execution. The people standing in the room say, yeah, he just set up this giant impaling pole for Mordecai the hero. Maybe you want to use that on him, king. The king says, good idea. And so what he designed to bring down the Jews is now his own instrument of punishment he's dead one problem down one problem yet to go Haman is gone but the evil he set in motion continues through the prior edict of the king the edict's already gone out to kill the Jews on a certain date now how do we undo that So when we left last week, we are waiting to hear the conclusion or the resolution of the story. And while we're waiting for that, we have to remember the overarching narrative here that God's great faithfulness and God's great love for His covenant people will always prevail. That is the story that comes to resolution in the final three chapters of the book of Esther. Now remember, these Old Testament stories of God's deliverance... They can powerfully affect how you live your life, which is why they're in the Bible, and it's how they've been used historically to read the old story and then look at our own present-day context and see if there's some lesson there for us. Because these Old Testament deliverance stories are so powerful, as I reminded you some weeks ago, the Nazis forbade the Jews from reading the book of Esther in the concentration camps. If you were found with a copy you were executed immediately and it was forbidden to be read in the concentration camps. You might ask yourself why? Because it's a story of how God's people prevail. It's a story of deliverance. It's a story that although you design things against us you will never annihilate us. We are God's covenant people. And that's the underlying theme that's being played out here. The Nazis could not prevent the book of Esther from Because they had memorized it. So when they got in the concentration camps, they continually would recite it from memory to one another. And they would write out secret copies of the book of Esther and pass them around until they were caught and confiscated and killed. And then somebody else would recite another copy. That's the beauty of hiding God's word in your heart. You have a constant source of hope living in you. That brings us to the last three chapters, which is the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim. The last three chapters result in the deliverance of the Jews and in yet another feast, which is the motif of the whole book. The Feast of Purim is a national holiday for the Jews. Uh, uh, It has been celebrated since the days of Esther, which you're about to see, until 2022. It's It's been celebrated since the days of Esther until this present hour. Let me show you a couple of pictures real quick just to get your head around what Purim looks like in Israel. These are all Hebrew in the background writing. These are all shots from Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. It's a lot, wait, back up one. It's a lot of Wonder Womans. Okay. Notice what's on the chest. You see that? Yellow Star of David instead of the normal Wonder Woman one little change to the costume suddenly makes it Jewish Wonder Woman. Uh, I'm wondering if that's Queen Esther. I'm wondering, you know what I'm saying, woman warrior, woman hero. This is what the holiday's about. Everybody's in costume. Look at the streets, jammed with people. All right, go forward. Any of these look familiar? Is that Snow White? Does anybody know who this is? Who is that one? Who's in the middle there? Incredibles, yeah. See, when you see that shot, if I didn't tell you this was Tel Aviv, you'd say, "Oh, Pebbles had a costume party here at Cornerstone." This is Purim. Some of these pictures were taken this year. Go ahead. Ah, Mario. Yeah. Purim. You say, "Oh, I thought this was a Jewish religious holiday." It's a Jewish holiday. Of liberation. Forward. When you see this scene, what do you think of from American life that might be similar to this? Ah, Mardi Gras. As a matter of fact, you'll you'll relate to this because we love to have costume parties around here, and we love to do trunk or treat and dress up and play silly. In Israel today, uh, as I was researching for the sermon and trying to find you a couple of pictures I could actually show in public. Um, uh, the big, there was a news article that I was reading and it said, we're frustrated in Israel because you can no longer buy a woman's Halloween costume that doesn't begin with the word slutty. Slutty pirate, slutty, you know what I'm saying? It's the same way in America. You guys know what I'm talking about. A sexy nurse. A sexy wonder woman, you know. And so when, so when you see this, here's what I want you to know. This is like Mardi Gras meets Halloween, Okay? In your context, this is the Feast of Purim being celebrated in Israel right now. What else you got? Anything else? Yeah, okay, here we go. Exactly. These are the tamer ones I can show you. All right, go one more. They have noisemakers. I'll show you how the noisemakers come in in just a moment. Go ahead. Uh, this is the pastry that will be all over Israel. So when you're, when you're in the Feast of Purim, every shop is selling this triangular pastry right here. Some are figs in it, some have fruit in it, some have jelly in them, some have uh, some kind of meat in them. That little triangular pastry that you're looking at are called Haman's ears. Because in the old days of the ancient world, you executed someone, sometimes they would cut their ears off. And you're like, oh, gross. Yeah, all over Israel, they're eating a pastry called Haman's ears. Okay, so is that your last one? Now, let me, let me just tell you what you're seeing, okay? When Jews gather every year to keep the Feast of Purim, they gather with family and friends. They plan ahead like you plan ahead for a Mardi Gras party or like you would plan ahead for a, a Halloween uh, costume party. Everyone's buying costumes. Everyone's getting, You send baskets of food to your friends. You send, it's kind of a little Christmas thrown in there as well. You send gifts to your friends and food baskets to friends and you go down to the bakery and get some Haman's ears and, and, you, and you serve them to, to your friends and your family and, and you sing and you dance and you party and everyone goes to the synagogue and in the synagogue the book of Esther is read in its entirety like a play They just start at the beginning and just read right through it and everyone comes into the synagogue with those noisemakers. Okay? And as they're reading the book of Esther, everyone is interacting with the story. And so it's just culture. They, they, you don't have to tell them what to do. Everyone knows what to do. They come in, they're dressed up, they've got their noisemakers, and they stand to read the story. And when the reader says, Haman, any time the name Haman is mentioned, everyone's like, boo Cursed be Haman. Have you ever seen British Parliament? That's what the synagogue looks like. So the guy, you know, they're up reading, the rabbi's up reading through the book of Esther. And Haman did such and such, the crowd just erupts. Cursed be that jerkwad. Now that's going to happen a million times in the reading of the story. And every time the name Mordecai is mentioned, Everyone breaks out shouting and clapping and says, blessed be Mordecai. Now, can you set that scene in your mind for a minute, what that must be like? And Haman did the, and then Mordecai, yeah, Mordecai, go, you're our man, yeah, blessed be Mordecai, the Jew. The place is raucous. It's rocking, okay? Now, you Baptists, you've missed out on a lot of life because of your background. The Talmud Uh, If you don't know what the Talmud is, that's the Jews' holy book of rabbinical law. It is the main source of rabbinical law for the Judaistic faith. The Talmud, their holy book, prescribes drinking and celebrating. I'm quoting now. Drinking and celebrating until one can no longer tell the difference between Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed, end quote. So for those of you who think Jews don't drink, guess again. (laughs) Now some of you probably shouldn't because you don't have any control. You may have family history. You may have a lot of reasons you don't. Some of you could use one and you need to lighten up and loosen up. But when the Jews get to a moment like this, I just want you to know they cut loose and they enjoy life and they are celebrating life. I fear that my spiritual ancestors forgot to celebrate life. They forgot all about celebrating life. And I want you to re-embrace with your Jewish kinfolk what it means to be God's people who are celebrating life. You say, why are they celebrating? Because an edict has gone out that is a death sentence and the day of death was on a certain date And the day of death has come and gone and we're still here. And we are celebrating life with our friends and our family. Death has come. God's covenant people still stand. It's a recurring theme of the Old Testament, by the way. There was a night where they put blood on the lintel in the doorposts of the house and death showed up in Egypt and all the firstborn were wiped out in one night and God's people went out that night early in the morning if you would as a free nation, a covenant people of God headed to Sinai to renew marriage vows with God. Death had come, God's covenant people are still alive and we're going to celebrate life. Now let that get down into you and you guys reignite your zeal for living. Because this is what the New Testament is constantly speaking at you. Jesus is constantly talking to you about life and abundant life. Life and joy. Joy and abundance. Bearing fruit, pleasing your Father. Connecting in life in Christ. And death is now behind you. When Jesus wrote to John in the Revelation, Jesus is speaking to John about celebrating life. John said, when I saw him, I felt that his feet is dead. And then he placed his right hand on me. And then Jesus said to John, this is the resurrected, glorified Jesus with eyes that are a flaming fire, Jesus, okay? Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, sure, but now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And then you just turn one page in your New Testament and Jesus follows up. And so here's what I'm telling my covenant people to do, Revelation 2. Be faithful even unto the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Old KJV, I will give you the crown of life. Listen, the New Testament is a celebration of life. Of life in Jesus Christ. And everyone here this morning who's put their faith in Christ, you have a destiny beyond the grave where God has already promised to you that he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He's promised you a life where there will be no more death in your story. He's promised there will be no more crying in your story. He's promised you there will be no more sickness in your story. He's promised you there will be no more pain in your story. The only thing that's in your story is the joy of celebrating everlasting life. David said at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The church of Jesus Christ will survive whatever the world, whatever the forces of darkness throw at the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are God's covenant people. He's made promises to new covenant people. You say, why do we have the Old Testament? If for nothing else, so you could look back and see that God never reneges on a covenant. So that when you get to your life in the modern era, in the new covenant, you can live with joy and peace and hope and assurance, knowing that God has never went back on his word, not one time. And if he's promised something to you, he will deliver it. Which brings us this morning to the counter decree. I found this fascinating Esther chapter 8. Let me read just a little bit. The same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Now he's been executed. And so the king gives the entire estate of the second most rich man in the country to his wife as a gift. The tables have been reversed, haven't they? So he gave the estate to Queen Esther, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king. For Esther had told how he was related to her. It's all coming out now. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and he presented it to Mordecai. Mordecai's now the number two in the country. And Esther appointed him, Mordecai, over Haman's estate. It just gets better and better. So now Mordecai owns or manages everything that previously belonged to his enemy. Three, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite. He's an Amalekite, I'll talk about it in a moment, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter. You know the significance of that now. It means I'm granting your request. And she arose and stood before him. Verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him upon the pole which he set up. Now write another decree. Those words in verse 8 may be some of the most important words in this entire book, and I'll explain why. And now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you, And seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document can be written in the king's name and sealed with this ring that can be revoked. Verse number 10. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, and he sealed the dispatch with the king's signet ring, and he sent the dispatches by mounted couriers who rode fast horses. I like that this is put in here. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like Pony Express right here. They rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, self-defense, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder their property and their enemies. They were given the right of self-defense. Isn't that interesting? The king says, if anybody tries to get you, you have the right to defend yourself. New edict, verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white. Something's definitely changed now. He is a big deal suddenly. And a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa, this is the palace city, held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor, celebrating life. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. Let's deal first of all with the moral problem we face. You're way on the other side of history now. And when you're reading about these passages, this is what the word you would use, genocide. Where edicts are written and violence is undertaken to eradicate an entire people group, men, women, and children. We call that genocide. That's our modern word for that. The Old Testament is filled with genocide. Another way of saying that is the Old Testament is filled with wars of retribution where one people are attacking another people, nation against nation, people against people. We have that in the Old Testament, but when we get to the New Testament, we're faced with the teaching of Jesus. And the teaching of Jesus looks something like this, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now there's an upside down statement in a world of retribution and holy war, in a world of genocide. So you, the Bible reader, have an Old Testament and a New Testament in your Bible, and as you're reading your Bible and memorizing Scripture and communing with the Word of God, it can get confusing for you, and you wonder at times, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I reconcile the conflict between the ideas of holy war in the, Old, in the Old Testament and love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you in the New Testament? How am I supposed to, in any given situation, know whether I'm supposed to be killing somebody or loving them? <laughs> am I supposed to be in conflict or am I supposed to be praying for them and loving them? Well, let's deal with the obvious first. It is true that the practice of holy war was a reality in the ancient world. And therefore, since the Old Testament is a picture of the ancient world as it is, uh, the Old Testament has plenty of holy war uh, on its pages. Let me read you a few examples. First Samuel 15 is a famous passage I referred to a few weeks ago. This is what the Lord Almighty says, Prophet Samuel. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys. Don't even bring home a chicken. Now if you know the passage, Saul went and destroyed most of the men, kept the king alive and took all the spoils of cattle and sheep and oxen back to Israel. And as soon as he showed back up in Israel, the Samuel the prophet went out to meet King Saul and said, what the what, Samuel? What, uh, 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 what, what means all the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears? And King Saul said, well, i changed the plan. I thought God would be happy if I brought all this spoil back to Israel. And, and Samuel said, you disobeyed what God told you to do. He sent you on holy war. You came back with all of this and you've spared this king and you've spared the Amalekites and they're going to come back to haunt you now because they keep trying to kill you. They keep trying to do holocaust to the Jews. They attacked us as soon as we came out of Egypt and they've never stopped. Haman is the descendants of the Amalekites. It's still happening in the book of Esther. That is the whole uh, uh, under, undercurrent in the story. So now we come to Exodus. Let me give you the scene where it happened. This is one of the most famous battles in the Old Testament. Israel is fighting holy war against the Amalekites. Uh, they've come at them as soon as they come out of Egypt... This is the famous... You'll know the passage. Let me read. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Does anybody know the story yet? All right, let me keep reading. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were, were winning. And so when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put under him. And he sat down on the stone. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on the one side and one on the other, so that his hands were made steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword, and the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Now that's God talking. I will blot it out, God says. Moses built an altar, and he called the name of that place, the Lord is my banner because hands were lifted up against the throne of the lord the lord will be at war with amalek from generation to generation this is holy war in the old testament one people group of idolaters saying we're going to wipe out you jews and the jews defending themselves and going to battle nation against nation but as you keep reading the old testament you see things beginning to shift as we approach the new covenant when the Jews then go into a divided kingdom and then go into the exile of captivity, while the Jews were in captivity, in exile, they were not to be waging holy war against their captors. Matter of fact, in the decree of Esther that I just read for you, the Jews were only to take measures to defend themselves. They were not to go on the offensive. In other words, the king basically said, here's an AR-15 for you and here's an AR-15 for you. And here's a, a glock for you. And here's a, If anybody comes to you tomorrow on the day of death, you have the right to defend your family. That's what's happening. He did not tell them you have license to go kill whoever you want. What is this? There's a movie about The Purge. This is not The Purge. You can't just go kill whoever you want to kill on a given night. Matter of fact, the idea of The Purge is taken from the book of Esther, by the way. Where there's a night and then you can wipe people out. It's, it's, it's Old Testament stuff. What the king is saying is if someone comes to get your wife and your kids and your house and your stuff, defend your stuff. And you have the king's blessing to stand your, was that stand your ground law, Alan, is that what that's called? You have a castle law, castle law. You have the right to stand your ground and defend your castle. Don't you wish you had a castle? My castle wouldn't be hard to defend, you know what I'm saying? Maybe we need a moat, baby. We'll dig a moat and put crocodiles in it. The Jews of the dispersion of the captivity were to live in peace with their neighbors this is what prophet jeremiah told them. when you go into captivity you're not trying to fight against these idolaters they've taken you captive because of your sin so take your punishment go into captivity buy a house plant a fig tree you're going to be there for a whole generation be good neighbors be good citizens pay your taxes you know get good jobs and Daniel had a government job as prime minister, and Ezra had a job as the government, and Nehemiah had a job, and Esther had a job, and Mordecai had a job, and Shadrach and Meshach Shack and Abednego had jobs in the government. And they, they were all kinds of good citizens, and they were only given the right to defend themselves if people came to destroy them in the second edict. So what I'm getting at is today Bible readers are getting confused about how they should interpret such passages your interpretation of these Old Testament passages will be be determined by your reading lenses. Whatever lenses you're looking through will color how you interpret these passages. If we as the readers view the Bible's meaning through the lenses of the cross of Jesus then we will understand that the concept of holy war has ceased at the cross of Jesus Christ. Please don't miss what I'm saying. And if you read the Old Testament without the lenses of the gospel, in other words, if readers do not view the Bible through the meaning of the cross of Jesus, then we will use the Bible as a rationale for some form of continued holy war in our present generation. This is critical. No doubt some of you know a Christian who's really angry and borderline violent against homosexuals, against abortionists, against Muslims, against Hindus, against Jews, against something environmentalists, Democrats. I mean, the list is long, okay? And you're like, wow, this guy's really edgy, or this this person is really kind of almost portrays themselves in a violent way. You say, what's going on with that? What's going on with that is they've not read the Bible through the lens of the cross. They've read the Bible through kind of a mixed viewpoint, and they see that we should still be doing holy war today. Holy war has ceased at the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the death of Christ that provided the cessation of holy war and it is the indwelling presence of the holy spirit in the believer which provides the only power on earth whereby a human being can love their neighbor as their self you can't love your enemies and pray for them without the power of the holy spirit that's just not going to work no you're going to want to kill your enemies but once you see life through the gospel, and you've been affected by the cross, and the Spirit of God indwells you, there's a new power working in your life now. Let me, let me try to say this another way, because for many of you this is new, a new concept. All of the vengeance that God's people would like to execute on other people who practice evil has now been satisfied in the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken the wages of sin upon himself, and Jesus has suffered the vengeance of evildoers himself, and all of the vengeance against sin has been taken to the cross of Jesus Christ, and he has willingly satisfied the payment for sin in his own body nailed to that cross. And it's only by recognizing that the penalty has already been paid by Jesus Christ that God is forgiving other us and we can forgive others and we can pray for others and we can be what he wants us to be because we have, you can't forgive others unless you realize you've been forgiven. And when you realize your sins have been forgiven, then something flips inside of you and the Holy Spirit says, now you need to forgive others as I, God, has forgiven you holy war in human history must cease at the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus fought the final battle in the holy war on his own cross. So it is no coincidence then that modern nations which still practice holy war will be nations that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and the morality of the New Testament covenant. But see, there are still nations out there that want to wipe you out because you're the great Satan. You say, well, why do they want to wipe me out? What do they have against my kids? They hate just the fact you exist as a monotheistic, God-worshipping people, and you have not followed their religion. They want holy war against you. See, then the Christians rise up, like in the Crusades, and said, okay, well, then holy war against you too. And we're going to run you out of Jerusalem. God doesn't want you to be involved in holy war. Now this is complicated. So does Israel have a right to defend herself as a sovereign nation? Yes, like any other nation. Does America have a right to defend herself as a sovereign nation? Yes, like any other nation. But we do not have a right to go to war and say we're doing it in the name of God and we're going to eradicate all of these idolaters. Holy war has ceased at the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the universal implications. This is getting deep now. Stay with me. What are the implications of what we're reading? Well, the implications on one level are this. If Haman's plot succeeded in wiping out the Jewish people of the Persian Empire in the 500s of B.C., well, then Jesus Christ would not have been born. Jews would have been wiped out. And God's plan of redemption would have been defeated. Which is why it could never ultimately succeed. Because you can't overthrow God. Okay? But that would have been one of the implications. The entire success of God's redemptive plan is inseparably tied to the survival of His covenant people. Now I'm talking Old Testament now. Let me talk New Testament. The entire success of what God intends to do going forward in history is tied to his covenant people. You cannot separate, well, God's going to do this in the future from we, his church, are going to do this in the future. If God is going to do something in the future, he's going to do it through his covenant people. We are inseparably tied to whatever God intends to do tomorrow at your work. ...or in the city of Fort Worth or South Lake or Grapevine or Saginaw... ...whatever God intends to do tomorrow in Fort Worth... ...He expects you're going to be doing it. This is the key. You're tied to God in covenant the same way you're reading about the Jews... ...being tied to God in covenant in the Old Testament. And so we are in conflict as a people because we are against evil. I'm going to just make it... I made an assumption in my notes that you're against evil... Sorry, I'm speaking for you, but I'm going to assume that. We're going to find ourselves in conflict because we, God's people, are against evil. And here's our conflict. We're against evil, but we're to love people. And there you stand between the tensions. I'm to be at war against evil, but I'm not to be at war against people. I'm to love people, and I'm to to share the gospel with people, and I'm going to pray for those who persecute me, and I'm to be a good citizen because... Well, let me say it another way. Evil does not exist as an abstract idea. This is what's terrifying. Evil exists embodied in beings. In other words, it's not like evil is out there in the universe. No, Satan is out there and the princes of darkness are out there and the demonic powers of evil are out there. And There are evil people out here who want to shoot up schools and do horrible things. Evil is in people. I guess maybe the second scary part is this. It's not just in people, it's in beings. Uh, Spiritual beings. Dark forces, demonic powers, rulers over satanic forces. They are evil. They are evil embodied. And so what I'm saying to you is we have an enemy. We do have an enemy. And this is the tension you're living in. You're living in a tension since the days of Eden when Adam and Eve aligned themselves in rebellion against God. God came down and pronounced an irrevocable decree of death against Adam and Eve and their descendants. The wages of sin. And God pronounced a decree of death against Adam and Eve. In the day you rebel against me and eat of that, you shall surely die. The decree of death has already been given against humanity because not only are Adam and Eve sinners, we are all sinners, we are all evildoers. We all have God's decree of death standing against us. So what is God to do? Here He's made these humans to be His image bearers, and they've rebelled, and now He's decreed death. And how? So, so is God just going to wipe out the human race and wipe out planet Earth? And let's just try for something different, you know? Let's just try for a different thing because this obviously is not working out well. So here's what God did. Rather than wipe out the human race, he did something so revealing of his true character. Something so revealing of his Hesed love and his kindness. God has issued a decree of death, but then he issued a counter decree. Straight out of the book of Esther. Then he issued a second decree. A counter to the first. I want you to think about this. God issues a counter decree... That would redeem people out of sin and into righteousness. And that decree comes from the same ring. It comes in the same written form of the royal decree. It's backed by the same sovereign power of the throne. It has the same authority of the king behind the second decree. And this is a decree of life. Now a word of caution to Christians right here. God's people are tempted to fall into arrogance and pride once they realize, hey, we're God's covenant people, 90-90, boo-boo, we're the elect and all this. So God gives Israel a warning. Let me read you the warning. It's fascinating. Deuteronomy 9, Moses gives it to the children of Israel. After the Lord your God has given them, uh, has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, Christian, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of the land because of my righteousness. No. It is on the account of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then... That it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. (laughs) Now I just want to fast forward into history because you are also living in a land flowing with milk and honey. And you are a privileged people. Do not say in your heart we are here because of our righteousness those other people, you know, living around there, they were wicked, and that's why they have the problems they have. But we're righteous over here in America, and that's when we have all the prosperity and blessing we have. L- listen, that's not the story the Bible's telling. The story the Bible's telling is that there are no righteous people. The story the Bible's telling is there are no people deserving God's grace and favor. I think this is what Paul meant. When he was writing to the Romans, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And yet, God's purpose to redeem people who are his covenant people still stands, a people that will be saved from destruction, a people that will be his image bearers, a people that are bound to him through covenant. So, God, who had decreed death upon sinners, now steps forward in history and does what only a sovereign can do. He makes another decree. You say, Can he do that? Sure, he can. He's the king. You just saw Xerxes do it. He made a decree of death to the Jews, and he countermands his own decree. Now God steps forward in history and makes a counter-decree that anyone who will receive His Son, Jesus Christ, will not perish but have everlasting life. See, we're all under the penalty of death. You agree? We're all sinners? So now God steps forward and says, Okay, sinners, anybody who takes Jesus, I forgive you and I'll put, make a covenant with you and you'll be my children. Have you done that? The decree is countermanded. You're not under a decree of death. You're living now redeemed people under a counter decree of eternal life now, this is uh, fascinating god has reversed the curse through the cross of jesus christ this is what paul wrote in galatians cursed is he that hangs on a cross he said jesus has taken the curse from you for cursed is he that hangs upon a cross so now our present war against evil so the big question for us this morning let me sum it up again Should followers of Christ be waging literal war on a battlefield against evil? Holy war. In the new covenant, the church of Jesus Christ has replaced Israel as God's covenant people. In this era, Israel is not the chosen people. You are the chosen people. Have you chosen Jesus? Anybody who chooses Jesus is now God's chosen people. Now you are Abraham's sons, Galatians chapter 6. Now you are heirs according to the promise. You have replaced Israel by faith in Jesus Christ. You are God's new covenant people. And the church is different from Israel because the church is inclusive of all races of people. The church is inclusive of all nationalities of people. The church is inclusive of of, of all all languages and all cultures. Every flavor of person in the world is a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is the agency that now God empowers to wage war against evil in the modern age, not the nation of Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is his agency. And the theater of battle has moved from the battlefield, the literal battlefield... The new battlefield is the human heart where sin and evil come from. This is the teaching of the New Testament. When Paul told the European Christians to put on the whole armor of God in their fight against sin and evil, the armor is being defined as a spiritual quality that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read this to you so you won't be confused about this. Put on the full armor of God. So that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. No holy war. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world. And against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, now God's going to tell you to get in the fight and put on the armor against evil. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth. Now watch the spiritual quality of the armor. The belt of truth buckled around your waist. The breastplate of righteousness in place. And stand with your feet filled with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Which you can extinguish the flames. Flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now let me sum it up quickly. When the New Testament describes war against evil, it's called spiritual warfare. When the New Testament describes to you the instruments of war that you are to use, they are defined as truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, word of God. Not AR-15s and bullets and pipe bombs and Simtex and... no. We're not waging holy war that ceased at the cross of Jesus. No holy war. Spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of people against evil. And you say, well, what do we use? The gospel? The truth? The the Holy Spirit? Love? This is what we use to win the battle in our generation Each Christian is waging a spiritual battle against sin and evil. In the first place you're going to wage it is in your own heart. That's your primary battlefield. Winning the battle for this right here. And how are you going to win it? With the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God and with the Gospel and with love and with peace and with truth. And the ultimate victory in this battle is guaranteed because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. When he rose again, God has sent his spirit in you. You are not doing this on your own. God's own presence lives within your heart so that you can have the fruit of the spirit. So that you can win the battle. So that you have the tools necessary to fight evil in your own generation. Listen carefully. The church's survival is not dependent on one particular nation. If America is wiped off the map tomorrow, Christianity still goes say why because it's no longer defined within geographical boundaries like the nation of Israel. The church right now is global. Let me use the uh, apostles creed word. The church right now is catholic. It means universal. You say where is the church? Well, it's in China. <laughs> it's in it's in Nigeria. It's in Florida? It's in Romania, it's in Ukraine, it's in Russia. Where's the church? It's in Hungary, it's in Nicaragua, it's in Honduras. Where's the church? It's everywhere. It's in New Zealand, it's in Australia. It's everywhere. It's global. And so, holy war is no longer a thing where you say, well, if we wipe out Nicaragua, we got rid of Christianity. You can't get rid of Christianity because God has sowed it like leaven everywhere in the world and it's spreading and you can't root it out now. You say, how do you know Christians win? Do you hear what I'm saying? This is how you know. How do you know? It's going to end Because God is doing exactly what he promised to do. Listen carefully. Our battle is not with nations. Our battle is against with the dark spiritual powers of evil. And our battle is being fought with weapons that are spiritual weapons of love. Let me give you the postscript. Our time is just about done. I'm going back to Esther. I'm going to read you now the, the decree. On the 13th day... Of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews that had hoped to overpower them, but now the table, look at this statement, but now the tables are turned. Peripity. A whole new outcome has happened. Now the tables are turned, and the Jews have the upper hand over those who hate them. Verse 20 Mordecai recorded the events. And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate this is the institution of Purim now to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrows had turned to joy and their mourning to a day of celebration he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents and food to one another and gifts to the poor Esther 9.26 Therefore, these days were called Purim for the word Pur. Now, do you remember way back there in the beginning of the book, I told you that word would come up again. You say, where did it show up? Haman's trying to decide what day to launch the Holocaust, and he rolls the dice, remember? He casts the Purim. They took the name of the dice and used it as the name Of their holiday so it is called the Feast of Purim a comment about the postscript when all is said and done with the book of Esther it's difficult to distinguish who is actually the hero Esther or Mordecai when this is read in the synagogue it's the name Mordecai that the Jews cheer even though the book is called to us, the book of Esther. It's very difficult to tell who is actually the hero, Esther or Mordecai. This is by design of the author. This is intentional. The author is trying to send a message to you that they are both heroes. The author is intentionally telling you These two, father and daughter, work together in unity for God's purpose. Now let me soapbox for just a moment. It is the book of Esther that endows eternal purpose to the partnership of men and women in roles other than marriage and childbearing. Now you hear a lot in church about marriage this and childbearing that, woman's role this and man's role this. It is the book of Esther that has two heroes that are not husband and wife. That's what I'm trying to say. They are not bound together in a marriage relationship. The church, uh, the church has used the term laity to describe the congregants. Does everybody know this word? Lay people, laity. That's a church history word that describes the, the congregants of a church. Church history has used the word clergy to describe the, the, the pastor or the professional staff of the church. So when you read a book, you might see the laity this and the clergy that. And what's happening is some church people are drawing a line between you and I, and they're saying, I have this function and you have this other, other function. This book, Esther, reminds us that the laity has the same divine vocation as the clergy. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God has placed Christian men and women in a covenant community relationship that transcends your marriage relationship. Now whenever I talk this way, people get nervous. I'm not saying marriages, sound marriages and healthy families are essential to a healthy church. This church is only as healthy as you are as a couple and as parents. Uh, This church, this society... Matter of fact, the things you see broken in society are typically results of a broken home. Lack of a father in the home, lack of parenting, lack of boundaries, and then you get the problems we have in our our society. What I'm saying, though, is marriage is not the only way in which men and women effectively relate to each other for the advancement of the kingdom of God. There's more to life than just partnership and marriage. In our society, men and women receive the same education in the classroom. True? In our society, men and women fill the same positions in the workplace. Can I get a witness? In our society, men and women worship side by side in the church. If we were in Romania this morning, it would be men on one side and women on the other. It's a different deal. Scripture affirms that both men and women are made in the image of God. Can I get a witness? Genesis 127, in case you struggle. Scripture affirms that both men and women have an equal standing in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 28. And the book of Esther reinforces the point that neither Mordecai nor Esther held ordained positions in the community of faith. They are not clergy. You with me? They are laity, if you want to use those terms. Yet... It is the laity that God uses to deliver his people and it is their names you find written in the redemptive story of God's holy scripture because lay people carried out their vocation as something God had ordained them to do. It is through their vocational leadership that God's people were saved. It is through their vocational leadership That the Jews a few months ago continued to celebrate Purim. 2,500 years later, it's still happening. You say, how? It was because somebody, through their secular vocation, lived for the Lord and stood up and identified as God's people. And God used that and he worked through history through their secular vocations. So I want to make an application this morning. Likewise. You have been vested by God with a mission to carry out through your secular job. Your work glorifies God as much as my work. And when you embrace that, this used to be called the Judeo-Christian work ethic. When you embrace that what you do, Brenna, in the classroom, teaching brilliant young minds over here in the local school district, that that is a valuable thing that God is using through your life to transform those children and bring them to a place of education and understanding. And the love that you give them in the classroom, which they may not get at home, by the way, and the role model you give them could be transforming their lives. God is using you to make a better society and therefore a better plan. And therefore, listen, this is the way we all should be viewing our vocation what you do matters you say well i i sell insurance well praise god people need it you say well i make hamburgers well praise god we love those too be a blessing to everyone you know what do you do you you know i I keep the planes in the air and get them on the ground safely praise god because i need to travel in a few days and i want to get there in one piece you know what do you do well i i Manage an office. Whose life are you touching? You are all touching people's lives through your vocation. And I know you look this way and you're like, I hope Pastor can lead somebody to Christ this week and make some disciples. Listen, heaven's looking back at you and saying, I hope you can change the world through your vocation. This is what's happening real time right now. Right now, it is, see, what happened in the medieval church is the clergy stole the church from the laity. I don't have time for church history unless I need to pray and close. But in the medieval period, the church of Europe, the the clergy of Europe stole the church from you, from your spiritual forefathers. And they told the people, all you need to do is put your money in the box, come in here and take communion, and then attend church, take the sacraments, We've we've got the rest. We'll pray for you, we'll read the word of God, we'll tell you what it says. You just show up at church, put your money in the box, take communion, see you later, we're good. And church was hijacked in the medieval period by the clergy. My side did that to you. I'm sorry. The problem is the generations that followed, we still have the residual of that in America where people think they're good Christians because they come to church. No, you're good Christians if you live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at your vocation, letting your light shine for Jesus as if God actually was changing the world through your vocation and come to church (laughs) and take the sacraments and give, yes, yes. But there should be no disconnect between clergy and laity. There should be no disconnect between Monday morning and Sunday morning. We are who we are. We carry it with us where we go. When you walk into the schoolhouse, students, you carry your Christianity right onto the campus of the university or right into the high school campus with you. should be no different than coming to youth on Sunday night. You are who you are. You carry it right into Keller High School and Central High School and Fossil Ridge High School when you go. It is the responsibility of both the clergy and the laity in partnership to make disciples for Jesus Christ. It is the responsibility of both the men and the women who are in God's covenant this morning to make disciples for Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to say partnership together. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Here's a couple of questions I want to ask you before we dismiss. Are you in a covenant relationship with God? You've heard a lot this morning about God's working through covenant people. That term covenant relationship just means have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and entered into an agreement where you said, I am yours and you are mine, kind of like marriage vows. I accept you if you'll accept me and I want to live for you and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. If you've never done that, If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want you to ask him to come into your heart this morning. If you've never prayed that prayer, listen, heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking around but just the pastor. I want you to slip out of your seat and go to the back of the church. There are two deacons back there right now. And just go take the hand of one of those deacons and say... Will you pray with me right now? I need to receive Christ as my Savior. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to call you out just very privately. They're going to pray with you. If you've never received Christ, just slip out of your seat and just go right to the back and say, pray with me. I need to know Christ as my Savior this morning. I want to be his child. I want to be a child of God, a covenant person of Jesus Christ. You enter into a covenant when both parties agree. I feel confident to tell you this morning that Jesus has already agreed to take you. He's already agreed to forgive you. He's already extended his love to you. He's just waiting on you now. And if you're ready, you just slip out, go take the hand of a deacon and say, I'm ready right now. Pray with me, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I assume that most of you are God's children. Let me ask you some questions as we close. Are you following the orders of your king to make disciples? His marching orders are go and make disciples of all nations. You say, Well, I come to church. That's not the question. Are you engaged in the discipleship process? Are you on mission? I want to be very clear. I want to issue a personal challenge to every covenant member of this church. Engage in the process of discipleship. Realize your destiny. Take some risks. I know for many of you, because of the conversations I have and Susan has with you, I know for many of you, you're bashful and you're, you're nervous maybe even terrified to, to lead another person. Yeah, it, it, you have to take risks. It's going to be fine. It's all going to work out. Don't, don't let Esther be the only one that takes risks for Jesus. Don't let Mordecai be the only one or Daniel. This is your generation. This is your time. Take a risk. Say, I'm going to engage. Let me ask you, believer, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you? Maybe you've been in some spiritual warfare. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can fight with the spiritual tools. Maybe you're in conflict with some evil. Listen, it's only through the Holy Spirit's power that you can stand against evil and at the same time love your enemy incredibly difficult to live as a spiritual warrior. It's incredibly difficult. And it's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. This would be a great moment for you to say to Holy Spirit, God, your spirit living in me, I'm speaking to you right now. Empower me. Equip me. Listen, maybe you're, maybe you're like me. Sometimes I struggle loving my enemies and my neighbor as myself. Be honest with the Holy Spirit and just say, Holy Spirit, I struggle with some things. And here's the things I'm struggling with. Struggling with my boss or my neighbor or an enemy or I'm just struggling to get out of my comfort zone. or I'm strug- Just tell him. He knows. Tell him. And then cry out to him and say, Holy Spirit, help. Be strong in me and through me. Empower me for your mission. I'm willing to take the risk, but I'm nervous about how it's going to turn out. That's just like Esther. She didn't know. But look what God did. Father, your people are humbled before you this morning with heads and hearts bowed some are receiving Christ right now and some are just surrendering their heart and opening up Holy Spirit to your complete control God thank you for speaking through Esther and Mordecai and their story to us God this has been a good study for us Lord you've opened my eyes to some things and I pray the congregation as well Lord thank you for helping us be able to sort out how to live what taking a stand spiritually looks like. Lord, thank you for those who are coming to faith. Thank you for working through this congregation. Lord, I pray you'd bless our week richly. In Jesus' name we pray.